Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, that you are the God that that speaks to your people as we will read this morning. Um, But God, we pray that as you speak to us, that we would have ears to hear and and wills to receive that which you you give to us. Uh, Lord, I I pray that you would speak clearly to us, um, that you would be exalted and given honor and glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, this Advent season, uh, we are looking at the different songs that were given on that first Christmas in Luke chapter 1 and and chapter 2. But as we do so, we're not just looking at words that were written years ago that have no bearing upon our lives uh, this morning. But these are songs that get to the core issues of our heart that really help us to wrestle with our very being. And last week we looked at, at Mary's song, known as the Magnificat, which comes from the Latin translation of verse 46 of Luke 1 that says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And as we did so, we, we asked this question about that song. What are you trusting in? What are you putting your confidence for today and for the future. Well, today, as, as we continue on in the series, we're, we're going to look at the hymn of praise of Zechariah, known as the Benedictus, which once again comes from the Latin, from Luke 1.68, Bless, Blessed be to the Lord God of Israel. And as we do so this morning, I want us to consider another question as well. And it is this question. What is it that you think you need today? What is it that you think you need today? Now, kids, you may be thinking about the presents that you asked for for Christmas, right? That you're going to get here in a couple of days. And you're thinking, I know what I need. I've already asked for it. And I'm hoping that it's under the tree. But for uh, the rest of us, Christmas isn't so much about presents. You know, uh, what we need really centers around more things like you know, maybe finances, maybe to pay for all those Christmas presents, right, that we bought. I don't know. Uh, or maybe uh, a need having to do with the relationships that we have in our lives. Maybe a need to be accepted by others or a need to feel loved or, or significant. Or maybe it may have to do with your job or a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. It, it may revolve around a loss, maybe, that you have experienced. That as we come to that Christmas season, maybe you very much feel the ache of someone, a loved one, who you've had to say goodbye to, maybe even many years ago. So what is it that you think you need today? Well, as we look at the Christmas story, especially uh, the why of the Christmas story, it helps us to see what we really need. And so this morning we're going to look at three things First of all, we're going to look at a name, a name with a meaning. Second of all, we're going to look at a visit, but it's a visit with a purpose. And third, a a promise with fulfillment. And so let's look at these this morning. First of all, looking at uh, verses 57 through 66, uh, we see that, that Mary has been spending time with her cousin, Elizabeth, right? Mary was visited by an angel, told that she would bear the Messiah. And uh, she says, but I've never known a man. And he said, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will give birth to a son. And he said, this is a sign. 
Your, your cousin Elizabeth, who is old, okay, kids even older than me, okay, old, old, okay, she's going to have a baby. And, and so Mary makes that 80-mile trek from Nazareth down past Jerusalem to this little town south of Jerusalem to visit Elizabeth. And sure enough, she's six months pregnant. Well, she spent three months with Elizabeth and now it's time for her to go home. So Mary, now three months pregnant herself, probably beginning to show, then makes that trek back up to Nazareth. But in the meantime, that means that Elizabeth is nine months pregnant, right? It's time for her to have the baby. And that's what we read as we come to our text today, that, that she does. That uh, Elizabeth, just as she was promised, gave birth to a son. And, and, of course, all the relatives and the family members are happy and they rejoice, especially for an old woman like this to give birth and then on the eighth day, as was prescribed by God, she was to have that son circumcised, and so she did. And, and everyone assumed that she would call that baby Zechariah after dad. I mean, because that's just the way they did it. And, and if you notice, whenever we baptize uh, an infant, I will ask the parents, I'll say, so what do you, what's the name of your child? And they'll tell me the name of their child. And so, you know, they were very interested about what this child would be called. But Elizabeth says, no, his name will not be Zechariah, it'll be John. And of course, the, the, the family members and, and the neighbors said, no, wait a minute, but there's nobody in your family named John. You know, there's no Uncle John. Or anything like that. So why would you name him John? So then they thought, okay, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. So they, they motioned to Zechariah uh, and asked him, you know, what, what do you want to call your son? Well, of course, he's mute. If you remember back at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, you remember that Zechariah was on duty at the temple when Gabriel, the angel who serves in the presence of God, appeared to Zechariah, and he brought him news that his wife, who was old, would give birth to a son. And, and we see in verses 18 through 20 that Zechariah didn't believe the angel. And so Gabriel said, because you did not believe, you will not be able to speak. And so for nine months, Zechariah has considered uh, the, the message of that angel in silence. And, and now he believes that what God says is true. And so he, he asks for a tablet. Kids, not a tablet like you're used to, electronic tablet, not that kind of tablet, but like a writing, like a pencil and paper type thing. And, and he writes, his name is John. And, 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 and as soon as he said that, he was able to speak again. And, and the people were amazed. And we read in verse 65, And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, why is it so important that Zechariah and Elizabeth's son would be called John? Well, it has a lot to do with the question that the neighbors ask. What then will this child be? And, and we read later in verse 76 that he will be the prophet of the Most High. But just not any old prophet. He's going to be the one who will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And, and what he will show is that God is merciful. And that's exactly what the, the name John means. God is 
merciful. And, it, and as we uh, look at Zechariah's great hymn of praise, we'll see the mercies of God and that God does not treat us as we deserve. And so God was wanting his people to see that he was about to do a great act of, of mercy. Well, that brings us to our second point, and that is the visit that Zechariah received. Now, you have to understand this song if you would, that you see here in Luke 1 is really divided up into to do two different sections. In verses 67 through 75, the first half of that is praise. You know, Zechariah is praising God. He has been silent for nine months. And the first thing he does, the text tells us, is he blesses God. He praises God because he sees that God is doing mighty uh, works uh, in his life. And so he praises him. And, and then the second part of the song in verses 76 through 79, we see that Zechariah blesses his son. But he first of all praises God. What does he praise God for? Well, look at verse 68. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, when he says that God has visited that doesn't mean he just stopped by. Whenever we think about a neighbor visiting us, we might think that of them just you know, showing up at the doorstep. I guess people don't do that so much. They call first. But, you know, but somebody who would come to your house and you would sit around and you would talk. That's not what he's talking about. But rather, he's talking about God coming to his people to care for them. That for God coming to be with his people and to hear their cry and to, to answer that. Now, we, we see that throughout Scripture, and I'm by no means going to show you all the, the places in the Bible where, where we see that. We'd be here all day. But just turn to a few. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph is coming to the end of his life, okay? And, and he says, and I'll quote, he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you, he says to his brothers, and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, God's going to hear you. He's not going to leave you here in Egypt. He's going to take you out and he's going to take you to the promised land. He's going to fulfill his promises. And then look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. God comes to Moses and he says, My people are in bondage. And they're crying out to me to be delivered. And Moses, I'm going to raise you up as, as that redeemer to come in and to set my people free. And so Moses goes and he tells the people the message that God had given to them. And in Exodus 4.34, it says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. You see, Zechariah knows that God is keeping all his faithful promises that he made to Joseph, that he made to Moses, that, he'll make to, that he'll, he made to David, that he made to Solomon, that he made to Isaiah, and so on and so forth. And, and so this visit that God has uh, is not just a good thing, but it, it is an expression of God keeping his covenant promises from the beginning of the days. I mean, if you go back all the way to Genesis 3.15, where God promises to redeem a people for himself, that's the first place that we see the promise of the coming Messiah that will, where God will set his people free. Now, I, I think we also have to understand as we think about this, not only was Zechariah, had he been quiet for a, a, a number of months, 
But, but actually, God had been quiet. God had been quiet for like 400 years. Now think about that, kids. 400 years, that's about little, not quite twice as long as we've been a nation. Okay, there had not been new revelation in Israel at all. God had not spoken to his people or said, thus saith the Lord. And, and, and now God changes that. Okay, and now, okay, let, let me help us to, to really sort of grasp this. I think sometimes we hear those kind of things and we think, yeah, okay, so yeah, I know that. But think about this in your own life. Have you ever had those periods of time in your own life where you have prayed to God and you have asked God to, to answer your prayer? And what do you hear? Crickets. You hear nothing. God doesn't answer your prayer. And, and, and how often in those times when God is silent are we tempted to think that God has forgotten us? And maybe even sometimes we feel that God has forsaken us. Now, can you imagine what Israel would feel like? Here they are. They are, they are ruled by a foreign nation, by not just any nation, but the Roman nation, which is a very powerful country. And, and they had to, to submit to their will and their rule. And they had cried out for God for deliverance. And crickets. Chirping. Nothing. Nothing from God. And so you can only imagine maybe how they had felt. But Zechariah is saying, people! But God not only hears, but He has come to visit us. He has come to bring us comfort. Now, what, what does this visit entail? Well, look at verse 69. And He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, kids, when, when we're talking about a horn here, we're not talking about like a trumpet. Doo, 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 doo. That's not, that is not at all what he's talking about. He's talking about a horn more like you see on a bull, maybe on a ram. You see those big horns on a ram or very powerful. Or if you want, let's just think of a rhinoceros, okay? Now that's a horn, right? On a rhinoceros, that is a horn. Now, probably very few people when they see a rhinoceros, look at that horn on that rhinoceros and say, oh, how cute. Oh, look at that. It's so pointy. It's so hard. Oh, that's so cute. That's usually not the way that we oftentimes think about that. But don't you sometimes hear people almost refer to Jesus like that this time of the year? They see the baby in the manger and they think, oh, how cute. But, but God wants us to know that, that he is raising up a Messiah of power and of might that will deliver his people. That's how we need to see Jesus. As one commentator put it, he goes, the horn is the business end of an animal. Now, if you think about a rhinoceros, that is definitely true. I mean, can you imagine if a rhinoceros started charging at you? You know, you know that that horn is strong and it's going to do some major damage if it makes impact with your body, right? So what do you do? You run because you know that's the business end. Well, what I want us to see here this morning is, is that Jesus is the business end of God's salvation. That when God sends his son, he does so as a mighty Messiah that will deliver his people. Now, why does he raise up this horn of salvation in verse 71? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, 
as we as we look at this, it, you know, you have to admit he doesn't really mention Jesus specifically, but you know that he's talking about Jesus and not his own son John, because if you look back at verse sixty nine, uh, Zechariah says, "And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of a servant David." You see, Zechariah was of the priestly line and therefore the tribe of of Levi, but but Jesus. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, which was the same kingly line of David. And so he's saying, as God has promised years ago in the Old Testament, that he would put a king on the throne of David to deliver his people. And Zechariah now says, that's happening. You know, if you look at verse 70 and 73, it talks about the, the things that he spoke by the mouth of the prophets in the Old Testament of the things that he swore to Abraham. And he said, those things that I promise are now becoming a reality. Now we see through Jesus the fulfillment of those promises that God made to his people. So this promise isn't just for Zechariah. Uh, it's really, it, it's God's covenant promises to his people and the promise for the world. So you are a recipient of that promise if by faith you were trusting in Jesus Christ alone. So my question for you this morning is this. Do you believe this promise? Do you believe that God has sent the Messiah to save his people? We can very easily say, well, you know, Abraham lived a long time ago. And, you know, John, you know, that Zechariah, all that, that happened a long time ago. But it is still the same promise for us today. And it is still the same, the same God who keeps that promise. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. You see, God is the one who comes to show mercy to his people. God delivers his people from their enemies and delivering them even when they think that there is no deliverance. So let me ask you this morning, as you think about your own life, what is it that you need deliverance from this morning? What is it that you think you need more than anything today? You see, when we come to see God as the one who comes to show mercy to his people, as he promised, all of a sudden all fear is banished. This is a, the time of the year that we need to be reminded that, that we don't have to be afraid. That God is at work in his church through his people. So as he says in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. You see, it's a change that God does in, in the hearts of his people, that he is a God who keeps his covenant promises and he encourages us through that. Well, that brings us to our third point as we look at the end of this song, beginning with verse 76. He said, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now he's talking about John. He said, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Now, it's, it's interesting, even as, as you look at this last part, as, as Zechariah is like blessing his son, you know, looking down at him and, and blessing him and telling him what it is that God is going to do, this, this part of this text really isn't about John. It's really about what God is going to do through John. 
And, and, and John's purpose is to go and to spread the good news that God provides salvation for his people. And that's what he means. He's going to come and to prepare the way. John is, is the last of the Old Testament prophets and he speaks of God's salvation. Right? Now, what, what, what do we mean by salvation? Because I think, once again, if we go back to that question, what is it that you need this morning? We oftentimes think we need a lot of things. Uh, too often, even those who, of us who confess to be Christians, you know, we oftentimes look for material solutions to life's problems, do we not? You know, much of, of what we think we need are tangible things, are they not? Like I said, finances, relationships, well-behaved kids, whatever it might be. You know, we're looking to make it through another day. We want a warm house. We want less conflict in our relationships. We want food to eat. We want money to pay the bills. We're looking for God to provide these things. And, and you know, but maybe we're also looking for emotional comfort from the loss, like I said, of a, of a loved one. I think of uh, that Christmas song is, I think it's written back in the 1960s. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? We just, you know, we sing that and it's so great. But I think about the many people who listen to that. And for them, this is not the most wonderful time of the year. It's a time of, of great pain. It's a time that's very difficult as they watch everybody else being happy. And, and maybe they're struggling Maybe they feel very lonely. Maybe they even come to church and they sit in church with a whole bunch of other people and yet they just feel like no one cares. You know, it accentuates the pain of life to the point that maybe for some it just seems like life's not even worth living. And we think that what we need is for God to take the pain away from us. For others, maybe what we want is a political solution. Now, you may say, whoa, Rick, how do you get from losing a loved one to, to a political solution? You know, but if you think about Zechariah, you know, and probably many Jews in his day, that's exactly what they wanted. Because the Romans were, were, had overtaken them, they wanted a ruler, somebody strong enough who would come in and would throw off the Roman oppression that they were feeling so that they could once again function as a nation of, of Israel. And, and we hear that. And I think sometimes I hear Christians almost like scoff, like, yeah, I can't believe those Jews did that. Did they not realize that God had a greater purpose for his people? But how often do we fall into the same trap? How often do we say, you know, I wish we had a decent candidate for president. You know, sometimes I think I see the church pray more than any other. T I, th I think I see the most prayer in church. That's what I'm trying to say. I think I see the most prayer in church oftentimes around the time when it is to elect a new president. And brothers and sisters, shame on us. That is terrible. But I think it's oftentimes because that's where we're putting our hope. That we wish that Congress would pass laws. And so you see Christians sometimes being more motivated when it comes that there's a bill that's going to be passed. It's going to work against them. And so Christians are mobilized to call their congressmen and senators and, and to tell them, no, I want you to vote this way. Those are all indicators that we're putting our hope in the wrong place. That we're not so unlike the Jews. Now, those things are not bad. Don't get me wrong. You should be praying for your president. You should be praying for elected officials and things like that. But, 
you know, we can't come with the attitude, if only God would turn our country around, then everything would be okay. If God would only fix our government, then we would okay. But that's, that's the kind of salvation that we oftentimes look for. But that's not the kind of salvation that God is bringing to us. Too often when we want salvation, we want a solution for something in our lives that's outside of us. That God would fix something outside of us. In our minds, that's what needs changed and that is what needs saving. But our real need is what John came to tell us about. Our real need is not something external, but it's our hearts. Look, if you would, in 70, verse 76 again. It says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. You see, what did John come to do? He came to call people to repentance. He came to say, You are a sinner. And that's what we're called to as well. But do we understand that? Do we understand that deep down in your soul, that, you know, as bad as you think you are, you actually are much worse? Okay? That's the truth. You are way worse than what you think you are. As a matter of fact, if the person that's sitting next to you, and if you want, you can turn and look at them if you want, but if the person who was sitting next to you really knew how bad you were, the thoughts that you've had, the things that you have said, that the the way that you have acted, they would be shocked. Well, okay, they would be shocked if their heart wasn't just as wicked. But the reality is, that, that is where we are. And much of what we think we need, that is apart from God, comes from sinful motives and actions. And it may be our sin. It may be the sin of somebody else who is sinning against us. It may be the sin of, of what it means to live in a wicked and a fallen world. But, but too often, even as Christians, we mistakenly think that that's not really our problem. Yeah, 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 I know I struggle with sin. Yeah, 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 I know that. But, but really, Lord, what I need is I need you to change. I, I just need you to make my kids a little kinder. I just, you know, if my husband could just be a little bit more sensitive, that would really go a long ways, Lord. Or, or Lord, if you could give me a godly wife or a godly husband... Or, Lord, if my neighbor wasn't so difficult and antagonistic, you know, if my employer would just appreciate my work, you know, then life would be good. But Zechariah says, no, our problem is our sin. We need a new heart, a heart that's being changed by the mighty power and work of the horn of God's salvation. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand how bad we really are. And that if we are to turn to God and cry out to him, that, that he would save us. You see, the reason why this is so important that we, that we tie all these things in our life that we wrestle with back to sin, like I said, whether it's our own or someone else's or, or that in this world, is because that will help us to know where we need to turn to be saved, what kind of savior we need. Because I think that if we think that we just need a little bit of a change, or if the problem is other people's problem, then we will look everywhere else but to God for what we need. We will turn to the idols of our heart. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is our salvation. Jesus didn't come to promise us a better government. He didn't come to give us relationships that would fulfill us completely. 
Jesus didn't come to give us all the comfort and pleasure that we need. Jesus didn't come to give us freedom from persecution. Jesus came to give us freedom from sin. Freedom from the guilt of our sin. As we think about the things that we have done in the past, and, and not only would the person next to us be horrified, we are even horrified as we think about it. We just think, Lord, I don't want people to know about these things that I've done. But Jesus says, I'm going to set you free from that guilt. I'm going to pay the cost for that. And, and, and as we freely admit the wickedness and selfishness of our hearts and trust in him, he forgives us. And, and he gives us freedom not only from that guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. So that we may obey God, that we might take pleasure in living as God has created us. Jesus came to save us so that we would never be the same. That we would be made over in his image and that we would worship him. And we would worship only him and not other things in our lives. And the salvation that comes, comes from the heart of God. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercies of God. You notice he doesn't just say the mercies. He could have just said, because of the mercy of God. But he uses another word there, tender mercies, to, to, to convey the idea of something that's overflowing. So it's, it's the idea that he has there is, is that these mercies are gushing out of the heart of God. They're overflowing out of the heart of God. And, and that's why God sent Jesus, the Messiah, to his people to show us his overwhelming mercy. Do we understand that? Do you understand that salvation is not just a transaction? It's not just something that you prayed years ago and you think, okay, good, I'm saved now. But God continues to save you. He sanctifies you. He makes you like the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not just a doctrine. Salvation is the heart of God overflowing with love to his people. Not simply to give them the life that they want with the external order and the sanity that we want. But he gives us Jesus so that we might know God. That we might love him. But you know what that means, brothers and sisters? That there are times when, when we will encounter difficulties in our lives. And God does that intentionally because he loves us. And you're going, what? But he does. Because he wants us to lean on him. Because our hearts are wicked, remember? And we would be prone to go after all kinds of other things. And so sometimes God wounds us deeply so that we may rest in him completely and know who he is. And then we read in verse 79... To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. You see, the purpose of the visitation of Christ uh, is that he may be, as some translations say, the day, the day spring, uh, to shine on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now, the picture that Zechariah is, is painting here, those who heard his words would have thought of travelers who were on a journey and they were heading towards their destination. But before they got there, it turned dark. And I'm not just talking about dark, like with the moon out and the stars and, you know, where you can still see really well. We're talking about where there's no moon and there's no stars. It is dark, dark. And these travelers are sitting there in the dark thinking at any time wild animals are going to come and rip us apart or at any time uh, our enemies or robbers or somebody are going to come and to overtake us. 
And so they're sitting there terrified and powerless. And Zechariah's words are saying that's what we were like before God sent his promised Messiah to come and to, and to save us. We were powerless to do anything about our sin in our lives and the effects of that sin upon us. But he says, but now, he said, the day, day star has come, the light has come. As these travelers are sitting here huddled in the darkness, all of a sudden, boom! Light shines in a bright light that shines the path to their destination and they can get up and they can go to where they need to go and to find rest and to find peace. And he says, in Jesus, the Messiah, that's what we have. We have that light that shines, that shows us where we need to go to our destination, to God himself, whether we, where we might find rest and we might find peace. And so no wonder Zechariah breaks out in song into praising God. And brothers and sisters, if that's what Zechariah could do, and all he saw was the promise of the Messiah, Jesus was three months old in the womb, imagine how much more we can praise God as we stand on this side of the cross and of the resurrection, and we have the hope that once again Jesus will come again and deliver us from this sin and take us to glory to be with him in heaven where there is no more sin. Amen? So we could come and we can praise him. But it may be that you are here today and that's not where you're at. You're wrestling. You're struggling. Well, I ask you, if you would, to consider then the mercies of God and what he has done in sending his son so that you might find true peace and that you might rest in him. So what do you need this Christmas season? What do you need today? Like I said, you may think that you have a list of things. Well, if this were just different or if that would change or if I just had this, life would be better. But what we really need is just to be freed from our sins and free from the sin of others and that of a fallen world. But of course, we can't escape that because our sin is inside of us, is it not? And, and you live amongst a people of unclean lips, as Isaiah says. And you live in a world under bondage. But God has sent a Savior, a Redeemer, to redeem you from your sins. To change your heart towards others, even who sin against you. So that even while people treat you wrongly, they might even falsely accuse you. You can turn around and you can love them. You can die to your own wishes and your own desires and you actually can serve others. In the midst of your circumstances, when life kicks you and when you're down, we can be reminded that God has visited his people to bring them comfort. And so we can turn to him. It reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to Philippians, a church that he loved very much, a church that had supported him since the beginning of his ministry. And he said this, he says in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord wants you to come to him and find your rest in him. Let's bow our heads this morning for a time of, of silence and prayer as we, as we think about these things that God has spoken to us in his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your promises are true. And we thank you that 
and you are faithful to fulfill all your promises. That you are with your people. You promise never to leave us nor forsake us. And that God, you, you continue to work in our hearts to put to death the sin, that the remnant of sin that, that abides there. Oh God, we pray that we might walk in your grace this morning. Uh, Lord, that our hearts would not search in other places for help. Our, our, our hearts would not search for other places to try to fix our lives. But instead, we pray, God, that we might just walk in you. Lord Jesus, we also pray and ask for any that might be here today that do not know you. May they turn their hearts and their lives over to you, knowing, God, that you are a good God, a gracious God, a powerful God, able to save. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.